everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today we have a special guest, the Honorable Rosita Ehrlich Kennigsberg, the president of the Holocaust Documentation and Education Center in South Florida. For over four decades, Mrs. Kennigsberg has been at the forefront of Holocaust commemoration, documentation, and education, and throughout this time has helped educate thousands of students and teachers in the hopes they will preserve, protect, and perpetuate the lessons and legacy of the Holocaust. Her record of accomplishments is enormous, but I want to highlight just a few before we get started. In 1981, she founded the first Children of Holocaust Survivors Group of Southeastern Florida. From 1983 to 1986, Mrs. Kennigsberg was one of six second-generation advisors to Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel. In 1990, she again served with Elie Wiesel as one of the four founding members of the North American Advisory Board of the March of the Living Program. In 1992, Mrs. Kennigsberg chaired programmed and planned in cooperation with Florida International University, the first national conference on the identification, treatment, and care of the aging Holocaust survivors. This first ever two and a half day conference provided the first national forum for healthcare providers to learn to recognize the specific needs and concerns of the aging Holocaust survivors. In 1994, Mrs. Kennigsberg wrote and spearheaded legislation that led to the passing of State of Florida Statute 1003-42, which mandates Holocaust education for all Florida students from K to 20 and provides teachers training and resources. In 1995, Mrs. Kennigsberg was responsible for the implementation, planning, and programming of the national event, the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Holocaust of survivors of the Holocaust. For over two decades, Mrs. Kennigsberg has been a leading advocate nationally and internationally to secure long-term home health care for the aging Holocaust survivors. In 1998, Senator Bill Nelson appointed Mrs. Kennigsberg to serve on Florida's steering committee to assist the Florida Department of Insurance to implement the Holocaust Victims Insurance Act, which she also helped author and pass. In 1996, Mrs. Kennigsberg received a presidential appointment from the then President Bill Clinton to serve as a member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. During her tenure, she became a member of the Council's Executive Committee. Mrs. Kennigsberg also served on the Museum's Academic and Collections and Acquisitions Committee. In November 2001, in the House of Representatives, Florida Congresswoman Eliana Rose Letnin named Rosita Kennigsberg one of our nation's outstanding citizens and congratulated her for her contributions to Holocaust education and to Holocaust survivors as well as their children. Over the years, she has served and continues to serve on numerous boards, including President of the International Network of Children of Holocaust Survivors, National Vice President of the American Gathering Federation of Jewish Holocaust Survivors, the World Jewish Congress, the International Red Cross Tracking and Tracing Service, the American Friends of the Jewish Museum in Vienna, Austria, the Advisory Committee for the U.S. Distribution of Funds from the Swiss Fund for Needy Victims of the Holocaust, the Advisory Committee for the Center of Judaic Holocaust and Human Rights Studies for Florida Gulf Coast University, the Diversity Committee for the School Board of Broward County, and for over 18 years, she served on the Samuel Sheck Hillel Community Day School Executive Board of Directors. This past January, Mrs. Kennigsberg proudly announced a partnership with the USC Shoah Foundation, founded by Steven Spielberg, which will ensure that the HDEC 
oral history collection will be preserved and available throughout the world in, perpetu in perpetuity thanks to the extraordinary generosity of the Jim Moran Foundation. Currently, her efforts are focused on identifying the humanitarian who would be proud to name South Florida's first Holocaust museum designed to become the first interactive and bilingual in North America. Rosita E. Kennigsberg is married, has two children, six grandchildren, and resides in South Florida. Mrs. Kennigsberg, we are so honored to be sitting with you and welcome to the show. Thank you so much and I'm so honored to be here. May I say something personal? I'm very honored to be here with my granddaughter and with her best friend in the whole wide world, I think, <laughs> as well. So it's a pleasure really being here with both of you, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much. So we're doing this podcast at the Holocaust Documentation and Education Center. So behind us, you could see, um, so we have a Holocaust era rail car from Poland which the center purchased and restored. During the restoration, the original German designation number was discovered and identified as the actual rail car that transported men, women, and children from the Warsaw Ghetto to the Treblinka death camp. As we will see later, this is one of the two unique artifacts at the center, the other being a Sherman tank on permanent loan from the US Army. This type of tank was used in the liberation of Dachau by US forces. These two vehicles represent the tragedy and triumph of a Holocaust. We thought this a fitting location for our interview here at the museum. Mrs. Kennigsberg, we are so honored to be at such a special place today and are so grateful for you taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. Now, I wanna transition to talking a little bit about your early life. So can you tell us a little bit about your early life up to and including your college experience? Well, I was born in a displaced persons camp after the Holocaust. Um, my parents had married and uh, met there. And it's interesting to note many years later um, to find out that what happened in the DP camp was one of the most incredible stories that is really not told as much as maybe the tragedy of the Holocaust, but what happened in the DP camps, the resilience, the hope, the dreams, the courage and the conviction, and the largest baby boom in Jewish history happened in the DP camps, displaced persons camps. And to begin that way is, um, I think, rather wonderful for me anyways, to know that my father, like most survivors, did not give up on life, did not give up on Judaism, did not give up on family, because when everything was taken away, that this was really going to be an act of resistance and defiance to show that Jewish life was going to continue and there were going to be children and children, which was a unbelievable defiance to those that wanted the Jewish people to really not exist ever again and wipe them out. So my early years, I would say, were really phenomenal in the sense that I had two parents that were extraordinary, loved me lots. Uh, from the DP camp in Austria, in, when I was a year and a half, we went to Canada. We were on a ship called the SS Nelly. I had found out years later why I never liked the color green, 
Uh, apparently, it was very rocky at sea in December, and um, they had to clean the deck constantly, and the deck was green. So I never wore green for many, many, many years, and I thought that would be something nice to share, mm -hmm. especially with some family members. And coming to Canada, actually Montreal, we came through Halifax. My parents really did not speak English, had no vocation, um, but came to a country because every single time they try to get into the United States while in the DP camp, either my mother was sick, my father was sick, or I was sick. When the Canadian visa came up, my father said, that's it, we're getting out of here, it's beshared, we're going to Canada, and eventually we'll get to the United States. So in Canada, in Montreal, um, he built a, a wonderful new life for all of us. I was an only child for 10 years, then my brother came along. We used to kid around wondering who was the mistake because it took 10 years. But we realized our parents, uh, there were no mistakes, it was certainly planned. And the one thing we never had um, that always struck me, I lived in a community, every community in Montreal, where um, and it wasn't until late, years later that I realized where was mostly communities of Holocaust survivors and their families. So it wasn't unusual that I really never had a grandparent or understood until I got old enough, nine, ten years old, to realize I don't have grandparents, aunts and uncles. And I remember asking my dad at that time why I don't. And it was very close to Yom Kippur. And I remember the eve of Young Kipper, there were a lot of candles on the dining room table and for the first time I decided to ask why. And my father began to tell me a story of his mom, his, fa his uh, father, his three brothers that he lost, and candles were lit, cousins. Um, there must have been 20 or so candles in that dining room and that was the first time I ever asked and it was a very, very emotional moment. Even when I think back, my father always answered every one of my questions and for the first time I realized that I was named for my grandmother, Razel, and that my brother was named for his father, Solly, Jeffrey Solly. And we, it's not that we didn't have a remarkable relationship, but from that moment on we had an even more remarkable relationship. My father was always open about his experiences, so was my mother, she was a tremendous support. My parents, um, thank God, did very well, where it became successful. And then unfortunately in the late 70s in Montreal, political situation, my father saw the writing on the wall as many survivors and as many members of the Jewish community. Quebec wanted to separate from the rest of Canada. They had started language laws, they had come in, and of course Jews were always a primary target. And so I remember um, I'd gone to McGill I had met my husband at McGill at that time. We were married, just married, and my father came and he said, I'm not staying here, we're leaving. I'm not gonna go through this again. And we all decided. We got an immigration attorney and ended up in the United States. And um, we've been here ever since the late 70s. So you mentioned that you met your husband while you were at McGill. So at what point did you marry and start a family? We got married in 1971, um, a couple of years later, David, my firstborn, and then uh, four or five years later, Tamara, and um, it, it was wonderful. We, it's um, 51 years that we are married this past June, 
So um, what can I tell you? I know it's an anomaly for some people, but for us, that's normal. That's the way we grew up. Our parents were married that long, our friends' parents, and uh, he's the love of my life and uh, my best friend in the whole wide world. And if I had it to do all over again, I'd marry him twice. <laughs> so you were a teacher? Yes. How did you transition to your current job at the center? Wow. So English was not my first language, and education was always very important to me because as I was growing up, if there was one thing that my parents, and in particular my father, had always taught me, is that if you get a good education and there was not going to be uh, a decision that I was not going to get an education, this was mandatory in the Ehrlich House, and that Jeff and I were going to go to college and get a college education and be somebody, because my father, from what his experience was, when everything is taken away from you, if you have a great ed education, what's in your head, nobody could ever take away. And you could always fall back on your experience and your education. And so, because it was education and understanding that, I really felt that that was the area that I wanted to get involved in. Um, I know you could make a difference there. Education was key and I was going to go as far as I possibly could. I wanted to teach students uh, English as a second language because English was my second language and I remember the hardships. Um, when I learned English through books called Jill and Jack, I taught my parents English. Like I would show them the book and show them the word, whereas my parents were supposed to tell me in the households where English was first language, they could read the book to their child. I was reading the book to my parents. So we were all learning English together and it was quite an experience. And so I decided to do specialty, first of all, in kindergarten, in the Faculty of Education, and uh, also in music and in art, because I figured that was the area I could really reach and touch them all. And kindergarten experience was phenomenal with English as a second language. And the parents were immigrants. For them, it was also very important. There was a commonality. Uh, education was key, and we were all on the same page, and it was just remarkable. From that, um, when we moved here, I, Tamara was young, my daughter, and I wasn't ready for a full-time uh, position, and they had just started a Holocaust Center at Florida International University. So a friend of mine on the next street, Roberta, said, let's go see what it's all about. So we went, and it was something very close to my heart. I didn't realize how close uh, until we saw what was happening. And I loved everything it represented because the home that I grew up in, the story of the Holocaust belonged to everyone, regardless of your race, color, creed. It was a story of human rights. It was a story for the Jewish people. It was a story for all people because as we learn and as we know, there isn't a race in this world that, has that hasn't experienced hatred and prejudice and bullying. And um, I was very touched by what they were doing and they were interviewing survivors and everything. And before I knew it, when we left the meeting, within 24 hours, I got a call by the director and she said, we'd like you to form the first second generation group and volunteer and come on the board. And that's how it all started 41 years ago. So 
Wow, that's such an amazing story. Thank you so much for telling us. So can you talk to us a little bit about how long you've been doing this for and working at this current center? So I've been with the Holocaust Center for 41 years. I started out as a volunteer um, with the intention of eventually becoming an attorney. And uh, I did start to take a couple of courses, but every single time that I was going to leave, something happened at the center. Either the director's husband had passed away or other things, and they had begged me, please don't go, please don't go. And when I look back, I think it was just for shared. I was not meant to be an attorney. Um, my education as a teacher and what I had ended up doing in the past 41 years is what I was going to continue to do. So um, I got more involved. I was named the director there. Uh, I realized early on that Holocaust education wasn't mandated and that when we met teachers and they came to us and they started to talk to us that they have no resources. We even met individuals that thought Holocaust was horticultural and uh, we explained no. We started to come into the schools. We did a 28 minute video. We had decided to bring three students in from Dade County and we wanted to know what they knew about the Holocaust. The first student in high school said, um, I have no idea what does it have to do with horticulture plants. That was the first time. The second was, I knew Hitler was a great man. And the third uh, was, I have absolutely no idea. And then we realized that we really have to start curriculum, resources, teacher training. And people used to tell us that when you mandate Holocaust education, it's negative. But the teachers said, no, this is something they want to teach. It's important for all the right reasons. We realized we had the third largest survivor population in North America. I had made sure at the time, because when the board of this organization was founded 42 years ago, the founder was a nun, Sister Trinita Flood. She invited all the college and university presidents to come on the board of South Florida. And then having this large survivor population, I'd asked, how about we get all the survivor presidents on the board? And with that, um, it was an amazing, amazing moment. Um, the first board meeting went something like this. When they introduced all the survivor club presidents, the first survivor went up to the mic and said, I'm so grateful for being on this board, but I want you to know I never had an accent till I came to this country. And from that moment on, the love between everyone and the Holocaust survivors was amazing. They are our heroes, they're our backbone. They represent everything this organization aspires to, of hope and decency and dignity and what remembrance is all about. So with that, um, those three young men, we showed them the 28-minute video. The first uh, was in tears, the second said, now I understand, and the third who said that Hitler was a great man told us he was ashamed to be human, and that's when we knew we were on the right track. From then on, uh, we kept on interviewing Holocaust survivors. We opened it up to liberators, men and women of the Allied Armed Forces. It was extraordinary because people don't realize that liberators were not given any direction that today you are going to go liberate a concentration camp. They literally stumbled on them. They were not prepared for what they saw. And when they did see 
what they saw they never forgot but when they came home they didn't say a word until different things triggered their reactions and they started to come forward in droves and when holocaust denial became more prevalent in this country and the world they came forward more than ever so with liberators and with survivors and second generation and a community willing we were off and away for over two decades at florida international university we had finally passed Holocaust legislation, which took 10 years, was not easy. Um, from that, no good deed, as they say, goes unpunished. I was asked to chair the state task force for 10 years. It was a job in and of itself while we were doing all of this, but if we were gonna do it right, I was gonna stay inside the tent. That's a lesson I learned in life. You don't criticize from outside. You wanna say something, you wanna make a difference, you wanna change, you get inside and you keep going and you stay focused and you persevere. So that perseverance, if you ever would have told me this in year one, I would have laughed and said no, but 41 years later, we are here in this building. Um, we have gathered what you call the largest collection, oral history collection, self-produced, standardized, which now is going to be part of the Spielberg Show collection. We have 8,000 documents, artifacts, and photographs, which are also going to be displayed as well here. We have, as you mentioned in your opening, two anchor artifacts, a rail car and a tank. There isn't an interview, the 2,300 interviews, the 90% of them talk about the tragedy and the triumph, the rail car and the tank, so we can't be a museum, I always felt, unless we had a tank and a rail car, which tells the story we have to tell and want to tell and to preserve the legacy. And besides all the teacher training and all the online programs during COVID, we transitioned um, to online and realized that the impact we had there was so tremendous that we became more noticed and partners and what, so we were at the stage where I would say we're three quarters finished. The first South Florida Holocaust Museum, the first museum in North America to tell the story in English and Spanish, and one of the first, if not the first, that'll be interactive and digital. So it's been a, a wonderful ride. Um, I promised my dad on his last moments that I saw him that I would never leave until we're finished, so I'm still here. And it's a pleasure being able to share this with you today. Thank you so much, that You're was, welcome. wow. So, what do you feel are the prerequisites for your job? Number one, I think you have to be incredibly organized. I think you have to know how to prioritize. Um, you have to be very diplomatic. Uh, you have to be able to work with all people and understand why. I do not like the word tolerant. I don't like to be tolerant of someone. Um, I don't like to tolerate differences. I like to celebrate them. I would never like to see a world where everybody is one of the only, you know, either everybody blue-eyed and dark-haired or of one religion. It's the same way we all like different flavors of ice cream or whatever. It makes the community, it makes the world, and it's important. Um, yeah, you have to be patient and 
The perseverance is extraordinarily important. And like I said, we work with, uh, we have a board of approximately 60 members. Um, they all have wonderful opinions, but you can't always do what 60 people want you to do at the same time. So you have to maneuver and uh, you have to really have tremendous fundraising skills, uh, which I never took a course in, but I had some tremendous mentors along the way. And I realized that the budget and all of the sheets with the numbers on them, they are important, but my most successful fundraising moments have been by the story that I have told and recounted and the message and the case that I made as to why this money was needed. So if you can focus on relating to everyone you meet, uh, you can get them involved as a volunteer, as a board member, as a donor, and also whatever you're planning has to be related to the audience. It's not just what you like, it's what the mission is all about and how not everybody sees the Holocaust historically. Some people can really understand it through art, through literature, through poetry, through music. There are a lot, it's interdisciplinary. Some people don't realize it. They think it's only a historical subject. It is not. And can you walk us through a day in your life? Well, depending on the emergency, that's always the number one priority. I do not like to leave things for the last minute, so I look ahead and see what needs to be done, and we focus on that. They're usually, depending on, so if we're taking a day, uh, show up, for example, when we did what you call the dimensions in testimony, those are those holographic interviews, the Shoah Foundation was down here for two weeks straight. So in the morning, uh, the survivor came, and we had to get the survivor ready. We had to make sure everybody was focused. My major job was, I know interviewing, I understand it, I understand the process, I understand the sensitivities. Not everybody understands the survivor that is going to be interviewed, so my first priority in that was to make the survivor very comfortable and explaining this was not the first time, they have done this before, they've spoken to audiences, and that they have always, their goal in life has always been to remember and tell the story. Not because they could bring anybody back, but because they never want what happened to them to happen to this future generations. So once that's done, then the interviewer, to really understand who they're dealing with, to be sensitive, to be compassionate, to be kind, to be empathetic. Not everybody is as an interviewer. We run volunteer training interviewers college accredited courses. There are people that have taken those courses that are news broadcasters and they come in and they think they know everything. This is not sensationalism. We get one shot out the door to interview that survivor. And if you mess up, they're not coming back to be re-interviewed and you lose that testimony. But even worse uh, is what happens to the survivor at that moment when wanted so much to have that cathartic experience. So with all that background, then we go through timing, then I go back, I check my emails, the phone calls, um, preparing and planning, giving speeches, weekends, bringing in exhibitions. It doesn't stop. It's not a um, five day a week. It's the seven day. I'm constantly on phones 
and emails and whatnot. Would I change it? No, because I absolutely love what we do. And one of my favorite programs, if I can add, is called Student Awareness Day. It's a prejudice reduction program. We bring high school students together. Uh, we do it separately in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach, and in various other counties. It's become a prototype, actually, for the country. The reason our secret ingredient is survivors. So the students come in from high school. They represent all kinds of private, public, and parochial schools. And they come in, and they have to get a name tag. And we hold this at the convention center because we have anywhere from 800 to 1,000 kids. And as they come in, they're separated from their classmates, so they're not happy. When they sit down at a table, uh, they're seated there with nine other students they have never met. They're not happy. And then when they see in their mind an ancient person sitting in front of them, which is a Holocaust survivor, they're wondering what in the world I'm doing here. And then the last thing, we ask them to turn off their cell phone, and it's like the end of the world came. All of a sudden, though, the survivor at the table turns to them and says, good morning, my name is so-and-so, I'm a survivor of the Holocaust. I'm here today to tell you my story, because I don't want it to become your story, but I also want to know, I'm going to tell you what hatred and prejudice and anti-Semitism did to me. How many of you at this table have ever experienced hatred and prejudice? All of a sudden, the body language changes, the students turn inward, and they look at the survivor and they begin a discussion they have never had. They tell the survivor nobody talks to them, not in school, not at home, about bullying and prejudice or anti-Semitism or hatred. And a conversation begins. Films happen, lunch happens, discussions happen. At the end of the day, for these students, that survivor becomes my survivor becomes their hero. There is such an awakening, such a sensitization that it, every year it brings tears to my eyes. And when the students come up at the end for those who like to and they share their feelings, I will never forget there are two in particular and that's what keeps me motivated. One student got up there a couple of years ago and said, I beg my teacher to come back, to please let me come back. And the reason I wanted to come back is I wanted to thank everybody for this program. Why? Because of this program, I did not commit suicide. Because of this program, it taught me that my life is worthy. I have Asperger's. I have been bullied my entire life. And I want to thank you. I have to tell you, there was not a dry eye. We also had a young student who was dressed in a burqa. We did this program at Broward Community College, and she said nothing all day long. At the end of the day before the students go to the mic, we have a candle lighting ceremony at the table. And the candle went around the table, and the survivor at that point was Helena Laster. She's no longer with us. And I usually monitor the table with some of the other staff members, all of them. And as I got to the table in Yiddish, the survivor said to me, which means she said nothing, didn't say a word all day. The candle came to this young lady. She threw the candle down at the table and ran out of the room and said, I cannot go home today. 
and the survivor ran out after her and I ran after both of them because I wondered, oh my God, what is she going to tell her? So she went out and she said, why can't you go home today? She says, I can't go home today because, first of all, I never heard this story and I believe it. Second of all, my parents hate the Jewish people and if I tell this, they will disown me. Helena said to her, come back inside. You are going to go home today and I'm going to tell you why. She went back in and she asked her to tell what she said outside to all the other students so they, we were all on the same page. And she says, you're going to go home today because one day you are going to be a parent and it's important you remember my story to your children. She stayed friends with Helena secretly till the day Helena died. That was the impact of the story, of the moment, of how bringing people together and sensitizing them. I think once you meet somebody and you know somebody, you stop those horrible generalizations. You stop the horrible jokes and ethnic slurs. That's, in our opinion, how the Holocaust began. That is the beginning of the path along the rail. I would even call it along the rail line to Auschwitz, to genocide. So if it's not stopped, and we teach our students to stand up and speak out in the face of adversity, all adversity, and prejudice isn't prejudiced. It targets everyone, and we've all had it. That was truly two inspirational stories. I want to move and talk about what you actually do at the exam. What exhibits do you have here? We are saying goodbye to one of my favorite exhibits called Israel Then and Now. It was one of the first exhibits ever done by the Israeli government and one of the ambassadors, Ambassador Aharoni, Ido Aharoni, and our museum designer, Patrick Gallagher. Why the Holocaust Museum had Israel then and now is because in, I would say, two years ago, we were going to be celebrating our 40th anniversary. And we stopped wandering in the desert. We have our home. And we wanted to pay tribute to our survivors. And for our survivors, Israel is everything. Because as they have taught us, if Israel was there, they would have had a place to go. They would have had a home. They would not have lost what was lost. So Israel is number one. I remember growing up, we used to have two pushka boxes. And one was for everyone else and one was for Israel. The one for everyone else usually didn't get filled up, but the one for Israel was filled up every week. And my mom and dad, we were right across the street from the young Israel. Mom and dad would bring it every single week there. And that's, I will never forget. Israel was so important in our home that I had, I was only 16 years old. I was supposed to be 19. But I applied to go to Israel with a special first leadership kalah in Israel. And uh, I won. Um, I was the only one, believe it or not, in Canada. And they chose me even though I wasn't 19. My parents, my father wasn't happy I was going. He thought it was the worst thing ever. <laughs> in the sense that I was only 16 and I was going to be away for nine weeks. And he was a very protective father. Uh, so protective that even a week before we got married, I had a curfew, so that you'll understand. And with that, um, I went, and those nine weeks changed my life uh, in such a way that I understood why that pishka box had to be filled up 
all the time. So having Israel then and now, that's why it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, and for the survivors. Plus it brought to this museum, because we are open to all people and all races and all creeds, come in here and go through Israel then and now, and they see the remarkable country, what it has accomplished, how advanced it is in technology, in medicine, in every single area, and they didn't know that. So it, we do not discuss um, sex, politics, and religion. We're a non-for-profit 501c3 here, so we do not discuss that. And so for many of them, they leave here understanding a different story about Israel than maybe what they might read in a paper or whatever, or politics. So it's such a pleasure that they can reap that kind of joy, seeing a country that has come so far and that is so important in the lives. So that's one of my favorites, and it literally is being deinstalled as we're speaking. My other um, favorite exhibition uh, that left not too long ago was Operation Finale that was all about the trial of Adolf Heitner. What was amazing about that trial, it was the first time ever that Holocaust survivors testified. And the world was able to listen and hear and see. Prior to that, the world did not hear, did not know, did not understand, was not even interested. So in the 60s, to have that, it was remarkable. It really showed Holocaust museums later on, and especially us in the 80s, the importance of eyewitness testimony of Holocaust survivors and all those that came forward. And also, it was important, even though we had Nuremberg trials, and maybe not all were duly given the judgment they deserved because either they fled or they, for whatever reason. But here, Eichmann did. So if you did the crime, you pay the time. And it was important for this generation to know that, that there are consequences to your actions, which is another important lesson. So if you are going to have a decision, if you are going to do something, uh, think about it very carefully before you take that step because there are consequences, there are reactions and actions. And also for the survivors to realize it wasn't a complete cathartic moment, but it was a moment of finally a little bit of understanding and somehow for those they left behind, they realized that their voices were tremendously important and that they had to keep their voices really um, vocal and not be quiet, not be silent. And you have facilitated efforts for the treatment and care of the aging mm -hmm. Holocaust survivors. How did you come up with this idea and why was it so successful? Thank you for that question. It was never part of our mission, but uh, all the 15 Survivor Club, um, I used to speak to many of them for Yom HaShoah in Yiddish, they became all the aunts and uncles that I didn't have, even more so. They all adopted me. So we 
somehow have a relationship where they are extraordinarily trusting. And I am not joking you when I tell you for years, even up to this day, if they have any kind of issue, problem, they call me. If they have a toothache, they call me. If they have a pain, they call me. God forbid they can't bury, they call me. So with that, when I began, and then I had a best friend in New York, still have a best friend in New York, and we began to realize that many of the survivors were complaining when they were seeing their doctors or nurses and the way they were treated. Just because English was not their first language did not mean you did not take the time and listen to them, number one. Number two, for some people, when you mention the word survivor, they don't realize all they see is a striped pajama. Our answer to that is every survivor had three lives. They had a life before, which is important. They had a life during the Holocaust. And they had a life after, which is just as important. They weren't born, I used to say, my father was never born a Holocaust survivor. He had a life before and a life after. This was a horrific interruption. And somehow there is this predetermined notion that something is wrong negatively with every single survivor and are misunderstood. So we started going, and Barry University at that time had social worker training, and some of them had nurses training, and triggers. We realized, I realized with my late dad, that he would not go into our pool when we moved to South Florida because he could not take the smell of chlorine. It triggered all those horrible smells. Some of the survivors could not take the sound of the ambulances or dogs barking, or some of them if they saw a German shepherd. So finally, one of my friends in New York, her father had a growth in the back of his neck. He couldn't explain it. He tried to. They, and he was in one of the hospitals here in Jackson. And all of a sudden, um, he got hysterical because when the doctor came in with the white coat and whatever, they started talking to him. And right away, it was a trigger. He started to react in such a way they put him in a straitjacket. And then after the surgery, he came out of it catatonic. For me, that was the last straw. I decided, I met with the, at Florida International University had a center on aging. I'd explained a whole bunch of incidents that had happened. Would they like to do this because they are the, the, um, the actual entity that can bring together, because we're not in the healthcare business, and they are. So with that, we did this at Florida International University on the North Campus. We brought together, I would tell you, um, nurses, doctors, healthcare givers from all over the world. I even, Elie Wiesel, if you've read his book, Night, he talks about this doctor. I brought the doctor who's no longer alive. He lived in Norway and his specialty was Alzheimer's. Survivors were misdiagnosed with Alzheimer's are still being misdiagnosed. He wrote the book. Anyways, we had this conference and then we had made a point of having the survivors sit with all the caregivers and nurses and doctors that came. So they were seated at the same table just like the student awareness days. And when they saw survivors in regular clothes and being normal and whatever, and if they had questions and interactions, and also we had presentations, uh, many of the places, Jewish Family Services, thanks to a grant that 
we ended up writing for a million dollars came back into existence in most of the Federation. The Home for the Aged, I wrote a $3 million grant for them. I wanted them to really treat the survivor. We then did um, long-term home health care for survivors, started the first pilot, and with that somehow got involved nationally and internationally with laws and um, Madeleine Albright, when she was alive, asked me, what would you do with any of the money that comes from the claims conference in Germany? And I said, long-term home health care. They need the dignity and the decency of health care before, you know, after everything they've been through. So I'm still doing it at the corner of my desk. Uh, we still have issues, but it's something very close to my heart. and to the point where we were invited I mean I have spoken to parents of murdered children not that I God forbid you know any of that but because of survivors and knowing their stories and they are not realizing in some cases where their parents or their children were, were murdered there are so many things that are similar in the lessons and how you can treat people so compassion is important just because you don't speak the language or you've gone through a trauma does not mean that you're you're crazy and you don't know what's going on. So they deserve all the decency and dignity, and that's why. And as we've all learned, you have been very successful in facilitating facilitating change and creating legislation, and meeting with many politicians. What advice would you give to someone aspiring to do the same thing? Uh, one of them took me ten years. So my advice would be: don't give up. Uh, be passionate. Timing is everything. It might not be that time that you want it, but, and, and do it the right way. Uh, there are no shortcuts, and um, nothing that's worthwhile comes easy. And how does the song go? If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. So I do not take my eye off the ball. I don't listen to the noise. There are a lot of people out there with all kinds of, you know, my father used to call it aces, you know, reasonings or whatever, why you shouldn't do. If you know you're right and it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical, that's my values, and you do it the legal, moral, and ethical way, you are right, keep going. And you can always follow your dreams have dreams, make sure they're the biggest dreams possible. Only you can get there. Uh, my parents for many years, no was not in my vocabulary. I grew up on two books in English that they knew well early on. One was The Little Red Hen, you know, who will help me bake and all that. And the other one was the train that couldn't, could, you know, that I'm going and I'm gonna get there and I'm gonna get there and I'm gonna get there. Every step you take, and falling down or not getting it done or somehow thinking you failed, your failure is part of the process. You do not get to something by just it happening out of nowhere and all sheer luck. That's not. You put in the time, you put in the hours, and what you sow, that's from the little red hen, you reap. Now, what you put in, like my father used to say, Busman liked the Rhine, not Royce. So that would be my message to anybody moving forward. I'm extraordinarily positive. The glass is half full, it's not half empty. And family 
Number one is most important. Family is everything. Friends are wonderful, but friends come and go. Sometimes they're there. Or they say when you laugh, they all laugh with you. When you cry, you cry alone. But family is always there. So there are days maybe my mother and father were like, I told you I had all these curfews and strict and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, they were the best thing that I had. And today I'm blessed, very blessed, because I didn't have aunts and uncles or grandparents. I love being the grandmother. I love my grandchildren. I've been blessed by God, Shem, six grandchildren. When anybody hears that, they say, and I say, one for every million. And they're on their paths as well. And I hope that somewhere along the way, some of what I try to accomplish here, they understand why. And they also understand the importance of humanity, decency, dignity, compassion, resilience, and that heroic um, defiance sometimes too. If it doesn't happen right away, it's probably when it does happen, you're gonna appreciate it even more, so. And love is very important. You too. And <laughs> what are your current and future goals for the center? Uh, currently, uh, the next exhibition is coming. Uh, two of them actually, uh, and one is a legacy to remember, which um, these particular paintings here done by Mark Cohn, he's gonna be bringing 20 more that he's done, which are gonna be miraculous because of the size and what they represent. And then um, we have an artist from New York who is famous, uh, Dr. Wilma Siegel. She is an oncologist and she also has done paintings of survivors or any individuals that have experienced any kind of trauma, tragedy, hate, and the fact that they have overcome, rebuilt, and they have, they've aspired to, to life, you know, which is what every single day is a gift of life. And so that will be presented. So again, you'll see the tragedy and the triumph. And our students have realized this year, uh, especially after COVID, when they asked a survivor, we were online, and this is what makes, reminds me of this, and they said, you know, we couldn't go out, we couldn't do this, we couldn't do that, I couldn't have this, I couldn't have that. And the survivor said to them, Judy Rodin said to them, listen, she said, all those things are things. She says, the most important thing that I have learned in my life they come and they go. Money is round, it comes and it goes. Family is there for you, love it. She said, from here on in, I've learned to lead my life with love, with respect, and with dignity. And that's what makes me happy. And if I could be that way to someone else, and someone else could be that way to someone else, and that could keep going, like you throw a little pebble into the ocean and continue to make those ripples, maybe we are making a difference for a better place and a better world. What do you believe the most important characteristic is for someone interested in running a nonprofit? I think you have to be open-minded. Um, I think you have to be, I think being open-minded and accepting um, and realizing you do not know it all. 
and that it's important what I've learned. Um, if you want to do something well, surround yourself with those individuals that are experts in those areas. You can never be all things to all people. And the most important thing is to surround yourself with those individuals, that's why they're there. And sometimes people feel that, no, I have to, no. That was uh, one, and accepting. And accepting also to criticism, constructive criticism. You know, you're not always right. And when I say open-minded, there are differences of opinion, there are differences of everything. So just don't be tunnel vision for your life. Be open-minded. It's a, it's a journey. And can you tell us a little bit about running a nonprofit and how it differs from, reg, from running a for-profit business? Usually nonprofits um, have boards. Some of the, sometimes, um, some of the corporations might have boards or whatever, but I'm looking at small businesses, let's say they don't. Uh, and so you have more of an opportunity to exercise um, what maybe you feel is absolutely right. You might be, you might own your business or whatever. Nonprofit has different legality. Like I said, you can't discuss sex, politics, and religion. You cannot advocate for any politician. I might like, you've got to work, which I love working both sides or every side of the aisle. I do not, um, I think it's important to know, again, generalizations. You might think that a person in this group is so-and-so, and because you don't like this person in this group, whether it's race, color, creed, politician, sexual orientation, that because of that person, you've now decided everybody who is that kind of person is bad. All right. You have to realize there are good people and bad people everywhere, including in our religion, in our race. And you have to realize, too, that... Um, Again, being open-minded and not tolerant, but and and really being devoted and keep your eye on the ball. But non-for-profits is a lot of fundraising. Um, you depend on other people to help you. Sometimes that always doesn't happen. And but what's wonderful about a non-for-profit is your volunteership. The volunteers. I mean, we have hundreds of survivors. We have hundreds of community leaders. We have people that we can count on, that we know they do this because it's heartfelt. You're not paying them. Sometimes you find your volunteers more valuable than maybe members of your staff. And that finding that out to me was a shock at some point, but I found that out early on. And so I love our volunteers and we couldn't get our transcribing done, our docenting, our, you know, a lot of everything that we do. And what are your responsibilities as the president and what is your relationship with the board? So um, my responsibilities as president is complete oversight of every aspect of this organization from the fundraising to the staff to the programming to every single kind of issue. The personnel policy this year is being revised by two board members. And I have to tell you, they are, one is a former mayor, one is an attorney, and they have been on it for nine months. So 
that gives you an idea of all the things you have to consider and take into account. Um, something new for us that is a responsibility and weighs heavy is the security. We are a hardened target. This is something new in the last couple of years. And the fundraising on that, at the beginning, making the case for that was difficult because um, even some of our board members didn't understand why you needed security. Uh, and so what is happening in our world today with that, it, it's hard to realize that now, I mean, you come to this museum and you've got to go through the security is going to be more than ever before. We're going to have all kinds of security that will be like an airport with a closed glassed in bulletproof area before you even get into the building. And when you look at that, even where you worship and pray, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable where we're at that stage. So there's that, so keeping us safe. And then there's hurricane, which is unique to us of that kind of responsibility. And then there's long range planning and short range and um, all, you know, what your plans are for the future. So this year we're hoping to get the interactive learning center done. We're hoping to do the entrance way and get the security done. And I'm hoping within the next two years we'll be finished and that we might find that wonderful humanitarian that will put their name on the building. And you have many positions. You're the president of the HEDC. How do you manage all of them? I'm very good at um, multitasking, I'm told. I'm good at prioritizing, I'm told. And I also have a history of 41 years, which in my case, it's a plus, because I know where we've been. I know where we want to go. I now have a very good idea of the minefields. I know what not to touch and how to sort of maneuver. So in that, it's an aspect. But sometimes having all that history might not be such an asset. Maybe new blood, as they say, is always good. In my case, um, I don't know. They have not let me go. <laughs> so I don't know. I guess it works for them. And as far as the board, we work very closely. They oversee everything. They oversee me, um, you know, as far as even though I might have more free range in areas, I know one thing. I don't make decisions that need to be made that are major, you know, not how much a stamp is, but I contact members of the board. I'm in very close contact with our chairman and various people when I do anything because again I love to contact the experts. I like to know that what I'm thinking maybe I can change it maybe whatever. I am in no way shape or form um, bound to my opinion. Okay. So uh, they're they're excellent really really excellent and how very, big very is your budget obviously. and also how do you set that budget so the budget is basically on what your needs are so of course it's programming and of course it's you know staff and salaries and insurances insurances when sky high and security and on and on and then so there's an operating budget and that budget's around 1.8 million at this point. The reason it's probably not higher is because we have volunteers that do a lot of jobs that staff would do. 
whether it's the archives, whether it's the transcribing, transcribing, whether it's the interviewing and the oral history and things like that. Plus, they're experts in it. So I'm getting a two for one for zero, if you know what I mean, with not paying because it's phenomenal. Um, and as far as the capital campaign, um, you know, we are moving along in that. The governor has just given us a million dollars and we have just gotten a 1.25 million. We just, um, we're applying for half a million. We've applied for 3.5 million. If all that comes to fruition, I'm just about finished, but we're also in the midst, we're also uh, have done an endowment through the Federation for future, because that's also necessary. Um, I'd like to get us to the place where we're finished. There's an endowment in place and then I could, I don't mind consulting, but eventually um, I think it's time for me to really travel if COVID ever goes away and spend a lot more time with my grandchildren. And how do you do strategic planning, but more specifically your priorities for the year? I'm glad you asked that because we're just putting together a strategic planning committee. So what we've done, we do it for two. We do it for a year, two years, and five years. What we do is we go back and we look this year. What did did we fill? You know, do everything we committed to. Surprisingly enough, we did this year and more. So that's a plus. Doesn't often happen that way. And then we plan for the next five years. We plan in the department because we our mission is double: documentation and education. So, and that's where everything feeds into, that's why we're the documentation education area. So we look at all of those areas and then the museum in and of itself. And we uh, put together goals that are not fairy tale goals, but realistic so that we know we can accomplish them. And uh, we spend two day workshop doing that with our board members. Board members that have expertise in the documentation department take the different areas. The board members that are in construction take those, the more than education, and then the capital campaign, and then fundraising and endowment and whatnot. And it's a wonderful two days because it gives, gets everybody focused. It also gives them an idea of what we need to do and go. And um, it's really, it's good to look back, it's good to look forward, and it's good to be in the middle and seeing it happen. So you have to have that. If you don't have a plan, you don't have an organization. Okay, you're not gonna believe and this, what is but your my favorite, favorite is a telephone. <laughs> I am told I do magic on the telephone. So there are people that I meet when, when I first meet them. Um, I meet them on the phone. I try, I listen. Listening is very, very important. And if I understand that there is an interest uh, and there is somebody where there can be, it's not only monetary, if there is someone that has an area of expertise or wants to volunteer, this place can only run when all the wheels are going in one direction and all the wheels are actually working. So. And you need to constantly get new volunteers, new interests, also making sure people come back and PR and all the rest of it. So it all starts for me as a phone call. And phone calls during COVID were even, besides the Zooms, that turned our whole world uh, into a new other world of partners and whatever, but I love the telephone. Somehow this generation is not as telephone oriented, but I feel that if I'm scheduling something, if I can get you on the phone, instead of calling you 10 times, and they're, you're sending back and I'm looking again, just look at the calendar for two minutes and we got it done. So I think it's more productive 
and uh, it tells me a lot because I'm able to ask questions and elicit and it's subjective because I don't see the person on the other end right mm -hmm. and would you recommend your job to others absolutely if you want a rewarding you know at the end of the day um, I think I'm gonna talk about one of our survivors um, he was at Leo Schneiderman Leo Schneiderman was the survivor that went with me every week to Tallahassee for uh, I would say off and on for two years to get the mandate done the last day of the mandate it almost didn't pass because there were some funny things and one of the legislators said you know I think I'm gonna remain neutral and whatever so I remember one of the legislators who was a co-sponsor of the bill turned to me and said to me Rosita don't send anybody to the mic we don't know what's going to happen and that's where you know you look at the situation this is the 10th year um, Spielberg had helped us in everything I was not gonna listen so Leo was sitting there and I said Leo and in Yiddish I told him run to the mic and say that part that I love so much before the vote cameras were there all the legislators were there I said this is our last shot and we're not going to take a chance and he's not going to stop you so Leo ran to the mic that's where you have to think ahead that's where you have to weigh when you're going to make a decision how bad is the consequence going to be so I'm going to get yelled at or he's never going to talk to me again or whatever however if it guarantees the legislation is going to pass, it's all worthwhile, right? Mm -hmm. So Leo ran to the mic and he said, before you vote, I have to tell you my story. He says, the day will come where my life will be over and I will meet my maker. And my maker will ask me, what did I do with the life that I was granted again after the Holocaust? What did I do? He says some people will turn around and they'll say they became doctors, they became lawyers, they became teachers. And then he says, they're going to ask me, what about you? He said, I didn't become a doctor, I didn't become a lawyer, I didn't become a teacher. He says, and in the front row, I see they're sitting a million and a half children. I'm going to look at those million and a half children that were murdered in the Holocaust and I'm going to tell them that I did everything in the life that you granted me again to remember you and to make sure what happened to you never happens to our children or any children ever again. And that's why this legislation had to be passed. I have to tell you, there wasn't a dry eye and it was unanimous. So if you have to take a moment or whatever and you have to, so that's my answer to that particular question. <laughs> and you have a family. How would you say you fit in work life and home balance in your career? There first. If there's something, God forbid, I will be there. If there's ever, I love all the moments and the holidays. My favorite times used to be Pesach in Israel. And so uh, you make it work. I was a working mom with both David and Tamara. I don't think they 
suffered in any way because when I came home, of all the moms in the areas that I lived in that weren't working, were not home because all those kids were in my house. I was feeding them, which was my pleasure. I was doing um, science projects with them and not their parents. Uh, both um, my son and daughter could attest to that. They were always, always very welcome. I was doing carpool and I was always there with some of the others were not. So um, I think we managed well and um, they came first, whatever was needed. They, um, you know, David was taught to play violin at the age of two, my son. He was taught to read at that time. Tamara as well had every opportunity of every, she was also taught violin early. She was also taught to read early. She was taught about, she was given everything possible and I was at every single event. I did not miss events. That was when I came on, I told them my family comes first. And what have been your greatest obstacles and how did you overcome them? Greatest obstacles are um, falling down and picking yourself up. Uh, greatest obstacles are the noise of people that are not nice and not taking them to heart and moving on and staying focused. Greatest obstacles are haters and not being able to turn them around when you know you have to realize you can't do it for everyone um, and greatest obstacles are um, watching people you love uh, get hurt or, or even worse losing them and coping and dealing and realizing you have to go on um, and uh, but really you, you have to take the failure the same way you take the success in acceptance and uh, move on because you learn from it. You really do. I have done my best learning as I've been picking myself up, and I still do. Mm -hmm. And what is one of your accomplishments that you are most proud of? I think my family. Um, I really do. I am so blessed. I mean, considering my father survived, uh, and knowing that this was so important to him and seeing the family, um, I'm hoping that, you know, we can spend all the, you know, if I could write something down somewhere and, and like Julius used to say to me, I made a deal with Hashem to keep me around for as long as uh, you need to finish the museum or something. And of course, you know, that doesn't but you always want to be around and be here and be with your family. So that would be a, a wish, but no, my family, definitely. And what advice would you give to a young woman aspiring to start a nonprofit, work at a nonprofit, and aspiring to create major change in the world? Again, I would say to be hope open, to be optimistic, um, to really, bring together people that are experts in the field, educate yourself, read up on it, be knowledgeable. Um, don't shut people out just because they have a difference of opinion and uh, keep going. You know, plan your goals, plan what you want to do and follow them. Sometimes you have to change them along the way. Listen, when you're driving, um, 
Let's say you're going on vacation, you're driving here from New York. There are detours along the way. We got a lot of detours in life. And we have to find, the only thing is in the detours, they tell you where you can detour. We, we have to find our own detour, and, you know. Mm -hmm. And what books would you recommend to our viewers? Well, I do like uh, um, some of the classics, believe it or not. I, I loved George Orwell growing up, 1984. Um, I like the Moby Dicks, I like the uh, Dickens books, I liked uh, uh, Benet Brown, I liked hers, but most my favorite are the survivors. We have uh, started a program a decade ago about survivor memoirs. To me, um, every single one of their books uh, really shows their resilience, their triumph, what they went through, and if I have a a moment I pick up one of the night, Elie Wiesel's night, I think is a masterpiece of how in the world you could, first of all, even write about it, talk about it, and then want to continue to share that with a generation. It's so painful, and there's so many lessons there in life. Um, and anybody that tells me that they have nothing to live for, um, I find is truly tragic because there is so much. I mean, look at what people have gone through. There are so many people that are, God forbid, in horrible situations would give anything to have that opportunity to live and go forward. And so um, survivors for me are my heroes. They are truly remarkable individuals. From, from miraculously their survival, they have from the death and despair, they brought life and hope, and out of the ashes, they gave us roots. I mean, we are their legacy to continue and through the generations. We guard their legacy. Uh, we are everything that they have ever wanted. Um, what they try to do for us, the life that they couldn't leave, they made sure their kids were educated, they made sure we went to college, they made sure we had all the opportunities they didn't. We tried to do the same thing for hours and, and on and on. So life is hope, life is love, and life is worth living. And what is one thing you want all of our viewers to know about this center in particular? I'd like you to know that within these walls are voices that have to be heard. And for the sake of, I would say, Jewish and human survival, they are a testament to humanity and to the lessons of the Holocaust. And so I would encourage the visitorship, regardless um, of race, color, creed, because this is a story for everyone to hear and know and also for generations to aspire to the incredible humanity these survivors have in their souls. And you educate people about the horrors of hatred each and every day. What should the people of our generation do to ensure that hatred is kept to a minimum? It starts with each and every one of us. So if you want to make a difference, you have to become that difference yourself. So, and it starts little. You can start being nice. You can stop those racial slurs and jokes. You can stand up and speak out in the face of adversity. You can help a stranger. You can do a simple act of kindness. There are so many ways 
that you can begin that process and or join organizations that do that. And also, you know, there's all kinds of charitable organizations um, to give their ways. People do it monetarily. People do it, um, you know, I know many of you do different drives and whatnot, but I think the humanity starts with each and every one of us. And also, I think we need to go back to the Ten Commandments. I, I taught, believe it or not, Catholic kids for a while. Um, that was my first job. And I will never forget uh, the principal who came to me and said to me, you're Jewish. And I said, yes. And I said, as far as I'm concerned, I would only teach things that are universal. And to me, um, or make sense, the Ten Commandments are. I mean, honoring mothers and fathering, being kind to the stranger, love your neighbor, you know, on and on and on. If we each tried hard with each and every one of those, I think we would be living in a better world and stop with all this hatred and, and violence and bigotry. Why? And to me, I also think it's um, ignorant. I think if you start educating people, and showing them what the difference is. Sometimes people just hate because they were brought up that way. So you can change some, but you can't change everyone. Mrs. Kenningsberg, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It was so special. We really learned so much and felt so much. Thank you so much, Gabrielle. Mm -hmm. It's really been wonderful. It's really been a treat. I'm so honored. Um, if it's possible, I love you both more. We hope the listeners enjoyed our conversation as much as we did. Please check out our other episodes and visit us on Instagram. See you soon.